Hey y'all, it's Kelsey. We made it all the way to episode 9 of Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit. I have something special in store for episode 10, so make it to the end of today's episode to learn more. I've been thinking a lot about chapters and transitions. Quite literally, I'm in the middle of a long-form writing project. But a little more metaphorically, I'm also experiencing a transit moment at work. I'm always learning and feeling more within my relationships in my life. And I've been having a lot of visuals about finding edges and precipices and talking about this in my therapy work. Edges may mean falling, but they also may mean leaping. And I feel a leap in my guts, maybe a leap filled with dance moves and backstroking through clouds. So if you're finding new edges in your life right now, in this month of August, I'm sending you comfort and ease through your transit. But today, today I had the absolute honor of having Sadia Omer on Cool Queers doing cool shit. Sadia is many things, a former child, an aspiring adult, and a chronically sleepy person. They are a community organizer, writer, designer, curator, and creative consultant dedicated to the liberation of Black queer people across the Black and African diaspora. Their work often takes the complex and nebulous experiences of marginalized people and turns them into accessible opportunities for healing and culturally informed initiatives. I learned so much over the course of this conversation, and we were able to dig in to so many topics that mean so much to Sadia and in turn became to mean so much to me. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. So let's dig in. Hi, Sadia. Hi. Oh my God. Hi, Kelsey. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit. I am so excited to have you. Oh my God. Thank you for having me. I feel like now it's a family tradition because Brittany did it. So now it just only feels right that <laughs> I do. Exactly. So for the listeners, a little context, the wonderful Brittany Daniels, who was earlier in this season talking about uh, racism in healthcare, providing healthcare during COVID. They are their own spectacular being. And their partner, Sadia, is now joining us to talk about their amazing work in very different justice spaces. So um, y'all are miraculous beings separate and apart and together. And I'm just so excited to be able to have this conversation with you. Hashtag power couple. Hey. <laughs> yeah. And thank you. No, thank you for having me. I'm really, I feel honored to be honest. Oh, well, I'm honored to know you. So oh. where are you joining us from today? So we're in Chicago. We're in my, right. in technically Brittany's office, but I'm, I'm going to say it's my office <laughs> for right now. Um, In Chicago, we've, I've been living in Chicago for pretty much my entire adult life. Mm. So this is what feels like home right now. I love that. I'm so glad it feels like home. Yeah. So I'm going to kick us off with an opening question. This is a question I've asked everyone who's come on the program. Uh, so queer, I believe, is not just an adjective or a noun. I, I truly think that queer is also a verb, so something that we can actively live. And I'd love to hear what you are queering in your life right now. Great question. I feel like 
for the past few years, I've been really querying the idea of religion and spirituality and specifically spiritual citizenship, mm-hmm. as I call it. Um, and to get even more specific uh, in re- regards to uh, the Islamic faith, which is uh, the religion that I grew up in. Um, I was raised Muslim by both of my parents. They were raised Muslim by their parents. And their parents were raised Muslim by their parents. So um, I'm sure at some point they were Christian, maybe like 1600 years ago. (laughs) And then maybe 4,000 years ago, they might have been Jewish. But for as far as I know, my family has been Muslim for a very, very long time. So as a very young child, it was all I knew. And for a long time, especially in middle school and high school, when I was coming into uh, coming into myself and and coming into my sexuality, I remember having this thought, which is like, oh, you can't be gay and be Muslim. That's not that's not allowed. And I'm I'm such a rebellious person. I have I have such a rebellious spirit that as a as a middle schooler, high schooler, I just remember thinking, well, all right, I guess I'm not Muslim. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> um, and it's not like that for everyone. I feel like most people, um, their journeys with religion and sexuality um, and the intersection of um, it is not like that. <laughs> There's a lot of like um, self-shame and self-doubt, which there was a lot of that for me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but I guess I've just found lots of different ways to, to reconcile the two. I love that little you is like, okay, if I have these two things that are fact, (laughs) I am gay and I am Muslim. Gay is the one that's going to stick. Right. Cause the gay ain't going away. The gay is not leaving (laughs) no matter how hard I try or you try the gay is here to stay. The gay is here to stay, (laughs) but it also sounds like, and I know this about you because of what we're going to dig into today and talk about today, that over the arc of your continuing to come into yourself, continuing to know yourself and get to know how you wanted to be in space and in community with folks is that you continue to reconcile with that relationship between queerness and faith for the rest of your life. And so I'm really excited to dig into that more a little bit today among many of the other just rad organizing works that you're doing. Um, So that leads us right into our next question. You're the director of a radically queer space in Chicago, but it's a physical space there. It's also become this digital space. It's a resource and education hub for folks across the country. It's a space for youth. It's a community of people and programs and mutual aid. And it's everything, right? That sounds like a lot of stuff, but that's because queerness really does kind of, I think, remove the boxes that we're forced to fit in and queerness is everything. So can you tell me just more about what through your coming of age and through being in this work of showing up for queer and Muslim folks, what the queer and Muslim community means to you? Yeah, that's such a great, that's such a great question. So growing up, like I said, uh, when I was really, really young, like elementary school, being Muslim was all I know. I I didn't 
I know like I have neighbors that are Christian. I have neighbors that are Hindu. Um, I have neighbors that are Jewish, but what their, their lives were like, mm, <laughs> cause I was a kid. Um, and so, you know, I, growing up also, my parents put me in a private Islamic school. Mm. Um, so similar to like Catholic school, but instead of Catholic guilt, it's Muslim shame. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, we had all the regular, you know, English, science, math. And then we would also have Arabic uh, class and Islamic studies, and we would memorize the Quran. Um, and yeah, all of my best friends growing up were Muslim, I think with the exception of like my next door neighbor. And uh, yeah, it was a good time. Uh, but there was a lot of a lot of shame about everything. So um, and specifically this Islamic school that I went to up until like fourth grade, uh, they were as as now the the Muslim American uh, community calls it the haram police. So um, in Islam, there's this concept of halal and haram. Uh, similar halal is very similar to kosher. So co- anything that's kosher, anything that's halal is good. It's permissible. You can engage with it in any way you want. It's oftentimes even um, encouraged. Anything that's haram is impermissible, uh, not allowed, considered morally uh, disgusting, <laughs> if not like just morally bad. Um, and so they would just use this word haram to describe almost everything. Watching TV is haram, listening to music is haram, uh, doing yoga is haram, drawing um, a person with eyes and a smile, that's haram, right? Like they were using that word very liberally. Um, mm. And it wasn't until I was older that I realized, um, I think actually my one of my parents pointed out to me that the, the word haram in... Uh, in the Quran is really only mentioned like a handful of times. Interesting. Like it's, I think there's like only 10, maybe 12, you can count it on your fingers, right? Like not more than like 10 or 12 times do they mention the, the word haram and ascribe it to a specific act, right? So like very specifically in the Quran, you'll hear about um consuming alcohol as being haram eating pork that's haram right um and that's not any different from like old school judaism and christianity right like um so this was just like individualization and over personalization of all of these other activities and behaviors that if you were looking to the sacred text said nothing but these people had tried to this specific community had tried to like overtly over push the shame stigma yeah. like feeling got to feel small in order to be godly kind of vibes yeah and very much like in the name of fundamentalism like mm. the idea was like if the prophet muhammad didn't do it then we don't do it but then like if you really go by that logic the prophet muhammad also didn't drive a car 
<laughs> right but nobody's saying cars is haram right like that's so let's use some critical thinking come on now <laughs> so yeah that was that was my kind of like elementary school experience and then um going into middle school and high school um well middle school it was kind of a half and half I went to public school for the first year and then I went we moved and then I had to go to a, an Islamic school again um and to be fair, my parents are not fundamentalist at all, um, but my parents and especially my mom um, felt like it was really important for me to be active within a Muslim community so that I can know my own religion. I can learn my my mother tongue, my first language. I can um, I can just exist in the world in a way that isn't ignorant to uh, the customs and belief and cultures and traditions that, uh, my family grew up with. Um, and, uh, the, and in a similar token, like they, my parents never went to Islamic school because they lived in Sudan where like 70% of the population is Muslim. Mm. Um, and even my dad, he went to Catholic school and, uh, because it was just it just happened to be the, the best school in that area. Interesting. And by law, the Catholic school was um, supposed to teach Muslim students Islamic studies. So, Fascinating. So if they if the students are all Christian, right, that's fine. Teach teach whatever you want to teach. If you have Muslim students, you have to include um, kind of like a class mm-hmm. for for those Muslim students to learn about Islam. So in a funny and ironic way, my dad learned a lot about Islam through like an Italian nun (laughs) 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 who didn't know a lick of Arabic. (laughs) But um, yeah, so yeah, middle school and high school, I feel like that's when I really started coming into my personality. And specifically in high school, I had a group of friends um really really close friends we all called ourselves squad squad (laughs) okay and um in retrospect we were all black and gay (laughs) in some way even if we didn't know it at that time right so like someone would come out and be like I think I'm gay and then like two weeks later or a year later someone else is like you know what I think I am too (laughs) (laughs) it's amazing how we find each other (laughs) right we really did just find each other especially at a a high school um like ours that was predominantly very white christian and republican Mm. um i had like a group of four or five friends that like we we kept each other sane yeah Um, and so at that school at that high school um, there was also a Muslim student association. So there was this club that met like once a week after school and they would uh, talk about Islam. They would build community. They were friends with each other. Um, they would pray together sometimes. Right. And I avoided the MSA like a plague. <laughs> I did not want to be anywhere near other Muslim teenagers And a big part of it was I didn't want that to deal with the stigma. I didn't want to deal with the um, with the judgment. 
um, with any of the like weird, rude, homophobic, transphobic remarks that I would have heard at any of the Islamic schools that I had been to in the past, or even just by my own family, um, my own parents or my aunts and uncles or cousins. I didn't want to hear it. So I avoided it. Um, so fast forward to my freshman year of college, I was at DePaul um, and there was this one office back back in that day. Now they have multiple offices, but <laughs> there was this one there was this one office that was like dedicated to like diversity and equity and inclusion. And it's oh, where yes. all give us that one DEI office. Yeah, please. right. It's the one office where all the gay people, all the black people, all the Latinos, all the trans folks, like that's where we all hung out. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and it's funny because like before I even found that office, I was put into a group chat um, that same year. And uh, I became friends with a lot of like queer people that were also that also went to DePaul. So I get to that office and I'm like, hey, are you so-and-so from this group chat? <laughs> and so we're all just like in community with each other now in person and not just over a group chat. But yeah, long story, just to say in that office, in that uh, one DEI office, there was um a bunch of flyers there's a desk with a bunch of flyers a bunch of postcards um business cards of different orgs in and around and even outside of DePaul and one of them was this postcard and it said something along the lines of um trans-led woman-centered inclusive mosque Ooh. right and I look at that and it's unlike anything I've ever heard, ever seen, ever imagined, never mm. imagined. <laughs> um, and I was like, is this what I've needed in my whole entire life? <laughs> um, and it was called it was that org called Meshed Arabia. Mm, okay. So uh so yeah, so I remember just like messaging the founder. Um, slash director of uh, the org and just at first I just wanted to be a volunteer I was like listen I, I have some cool graphic design skills if you want me <laughs> you want me to make a flyer or a poster I got up you. your social media game <laughs> right exactly um and so yeah and a few years passed where I kind of like lost touch with it and then right at like March 2020 like right at the beginning of the pandemic, they were hiring uh, administrative support tasks or staff. And I was like, bam, <laughs> typing on my little computer to, uh, to apply to this job. And I interviewed and I got it. Those were some of the best um, typing sound effects that I've ever heard, by <laughs> the way. <laughs> <laughs> but you got the job, then you're in. Yeah, I got the job I was in. Um, and a big part of it that that made it like the most fulfilling job I, I've ever had was that I was 
able to be in community with other queer Muslims from all over the U.S. and mm. actually sometimes all over the world. Um, and it, it felt like this was the only, this was the only like trans and queer affirming mosque probably in the world at wow. some points. Um, now it's, now it's not, but yeah. at the time it felt like that. Um, and so I loved it. And, and a few months in, I, uh, got to, um, participate in this mutual aid fund where we would basically um literally give out free money to anyone who needed it just like especially prioritizing um black brown queer trans muslims and especially those who were like um who were dealing with houselessness or food insecurity or um or abuse in some way. Uh, and that was really fulfilling. I love that. I think that's what really got me hooked. It was also, it was the first time that I was in an organizing position that for specifically for mutual aid. Um, mm. so that was different for me. It was a lot more work than we thought it was. We literally <laughs> thought it would just be like, people apply and we just give them money. And it was not like that at all because nonprofits have and the IRS all have really weird laws and stuff. So they want to make it harder than it mm -hmm. needs to be. <laughs> Very bureaucratic. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. And then um, right around the George Floyd uh, murder and the protests, I remember thinking, why isn't there any space specifically for Black queer Muslims? Mm. Um, and so I talked to my boss at the time. And uh, I was like, hey, I would love it if we could just have a healing circle of some kind that's just close to Black queer Muslims. And she was really supportive. She was like, yeah, go ahead, do it. Like, like you can lead it. Wow. Um, and yeah, so that it was a lot of trust and it was a lot of, um, yeah, just trust. And so I did it. And the first, the first healing circle meeting was actually very overwhelming it was yeah it was very overwhelming because there was we're in the midst of a, of a pandemic mm. and we're dealing with uh we're dealing with police brutality and protests mm -hmm. and all-time high unemployment um and so people came into the space and they really just wanted to vent and cry and be angry um and it was my job to like hold space for all of these emotions. Mm. And because it was my first time, I think I felt like, oh, wow, I have a responsibility to heal all of this, which I now know my responsibility isn't necessarily to heal everyone, but um, I do want to in some way provide some kind of support, whether emotional social spiritual support to black queer muslims and so we've been doing that uh we've been doing the healing circle for about three years now and i honestly would say it's the best part of my job because every other week i get to um laugh and talk shit <laughs> 
with other black queer Muslims. Um, That's so beautiful. Yeah. And yeah, a lot of people don't understand um, kind of like the alienation that uh, black queer folks have to deal with, right? Like black folks by and large have to um, deal with racism, right? Yep. Yep. And if you're queer, you have to deal with homophobia and transphobia. Mm -hmm. And if you're Muslim, you're dealing with Islamophobia. So even if you're like in a secular queer space, you often have to check something at the door, right? Mm. Make other people feel more comfortable. You're not going to mention anything about Islam, about like growing up Muslim, or you might not mention topics that are that lean more black. I hear you. Uh, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and so this was the only space for me and for a lot of people where we didn't have to check the Muslim at the door. We didn't have to check the queer at the door. We didn't have to check um, the black at the door, right? Or disability at the door. We could just all get on a computer and talk and laugh and maybe do a breathing exercise. <laughs> How fucking important. Right, right. Um, so yeah, I really love that. So yeah, I, I've definitely grown a lot. I still, I still have trouble with spirituality in general. I don't consider myself a particularly religious person or spiritual person. Um, but I feel like I've been not only given a space, but I can also provide a space where it's safer to explore that citizenship of spirituality or faith or religion in a way that's very justice oriented and I really love that that's so great so you've mentioned this spiritual citizenship a couple times I would love to hear more about as you've grown to like feel drawn to expanding this possibility for folks what does that look like like what does it look like to explore someone's citizenship and spirituality yeah uh, that's a very great question. Um, so for me, the first thing that comes up is kind of like when I explained uh, as a middle schooler, I was always hearing you can't be Muslim and be gay. Mm. Right. Like if you're Muslim, gayness is not a a path, a citizenship you can you can um, inquire about or explore. Right. And if you're okay. gay. You can, there's no, you are not welcomed in the Muslim community. You cannot gain citizenship. You can't get a passport. You can't even get a visa. <laughs> right? Like, stay away. Um, and so that's kind of how I think of it when I say spiritual citizenship. But also, there are Muslims within the Muslim community who feel left out, whether they're you know, queer or not. So um, obviously the queer and the trans part is a little bit obvious, but even if you're a Black Muslim, you have to deal with a lot of um, anti-Blackness, a lot of racism from within the Muslim community. Um, if you're disabled, a lot of times um, mosques aren't accessible, aren't accessible. The Muslim community isn't accessible at all mm. um, because they don't, think about folks with wheelchairs or folks with any kind of disability really right um to be able 
to function in that space in a way that's meaningful. Yeah, it seems like you've been really exploring and sitting with and trying to make more accessible this space of faith to folks of many different identities. And unfortunately, faith has become this topic that's often assumed to be inaccessible or off limits for queer folks. Um, mm-hmm. And and it, and it often is. I don't blame them for assuming that. Yeah, right. We're taught certain lessons of like being punished, being shamed, being silenced, being told we have to fix ourselves or that we have to be healed or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. that, that whatever faith tradition folks believe in that kind of what you were saying in the beginning of this halal and haram of good and bad gay for for <laughs> most faith traditions that I've heard about would fall into that bad category right. the equivalent of sin yes right yes sin exactly yes and so it's so exciting for me to be in conversation with you for so many reasons but also to just help redefine even my own thinking and understanding about the realms that can exist together Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the world wants us to believe that our identities have to sit in these certain particular boxes and you as an individual are sitting at the intersection of so many identities that include faith, sexuality, gender, race. I'd love to hear you reflect on some of your experiences about the gaps and this contradictory environment that can sometimes show up in unhealthy ways in at this intersection or this crossroads um including anti-blackness in queer and muslim spaces yeah so um i think there's this uh idea within the muslim community at large that um muslims can't be racist because oh interesting mm -hmm, because Islam and the uh, all of the issues that we've had to deal with regarding like post 9-11 Islamophobia and discrimination that that Islam somehow distances us all from whiteness Mm -hmm. so if you're a white Muslim um you're like, oh, I'm a Muslim. I deal with Islamophobia, but not realizing you also do have white privilege. That's right. Um, and even with brown communities, non-black um, folks in particular, um, there's this idea of it's not about skin. You know, we're all brothers and sisters in Islam, right? Or um, the person who's often brought up um, is this... Uh, companion of the prophet um his name was Bilal and and Bilal was a uh was a slave a black slave from what would now be present day Ethiopia and the prophet Muhammad actually bought his freedom so um bought his freedom so that he could live free freely um and that same Bilal became what is now what we now talk about as like the first person to ever uh, make a call to prayer for the Muslim community to come and congregate and pray together. So you will often hear 
we can't be racist. Bilal was one of the most loved people and respected people in the entire Muslim history, right? Mm. And I have a I have a, a fellow Black queer friend, um, Black queer Muslim friend, who often says, Bilal is going to be turning in his grave. <laughs> But just by the sheer number of times everyone keeps mentioning his name uh, in the name of anti-blackness and anti-racism. And it's like, Bilal has nothing to do with you. Bilal right. is his own person. Um, that doesn't... How do we know how Bilal felt? Right, right. Like, you even knowing the name Bilal does not like absolve you of racism or anti-blackness it's not a thing right and so yeah like it's it's there's also a lot of just like because the prophet muhammad and um like all of his family and his companions at the time they were in they were essentially in present day saudi arabia so they were arab and so there's a lot of this like very implied like arab supremacy almost that, that like the more arab you are even if you're not ethnically arab right like you could be south asian but the more you're able to let's say speak arabic or read arabic or pronounce the alphabet in a very correct like purest way right mm. then um then the community will perceive you better I mean, especially in places like India and Pakistan, where historically the caste system literally discriminated against people based on the color of their skin, how dark their skin was. And so that history can't be erased, right? As as much as you could claim to be anti-racist, that history, that culture ultimately informs some of your own biases that's right so uh yeah so um the queer muslim community isn't perfect is all of that to just say the queer muslim community is not perfect and and so oftentimes uh black community members even within um even within mestrarabia have to deal with um racism, anti-blackness, being spoken over, um, being told that it's not about skin color, being told that um, we should have more Arab or more Asian um, facilitators at these events. So um, yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. It's been interesting to say the least. And to be honest, it's been disheartening a lot. And so I've been really just hanging on to all of my Black queer Muslim friends. They have been keeping me sane, as well as going to therapy. Therapy, <laughs> shout out to Christine, my therapist. Hey, Christine. She's great. I love her. She's a white woman, but I love her. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so... I'm feeling a lot of feelings right now. I'm I'm feeling so glad that you've found community with fellow Black queer Muslims and have home there and have community there and have understanding with each other there. And I feel 
disappointment for the fact that you've been also experiencing anti-Blackness in these spaces that were kind of a coming home to you to begin with. And what a lot of people don't realize, though, is that somewhere around, I want to say, 40% of the incarcerated population is also Muslim. No shit. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, some of this could probably be attributed to like post 9-11 uh, Islamophobia. Um, but also a lot of um, a lot of folks that are on the inside, when they learn about Islam, a new convert, right? As soon as they say the Shahada and are, I guess, officially, quote unquote, Muslim, they start with a very blank slate. Mm. Um, true so, rebirth. Yeah, true. Yes, exactly. Like baptism, but no original sin. Okay. Okay. Um, so, and so, yeah, that's, that's very appealing for a lot of folks, especially those that are incarcerated. Now, uh, we already know that the incarcerated population is, uh, very underserved, Mm -hmm. (laughs) very underserved. In fact, sometimes not served at all. That's right. But um, there are some very, very few protections that Muslims get uh, within the carceral state. So one of those is that you you have the right to um, request halal meals. So meals mm-hmm. that don't have pork or ham or gelatin. Right. Um, and that every prison institution within the U.S. is legally required to to supply that demand. Okay. The other thing is that um, every prison institution has to be able to provide any Muslims um, with a proper Muslim chaplain. Mm. So um, that sounds great. (laughs) But in places like Texas, there's often one Muslim chaplain uh, that's spread across 20 different prisons. Oh, gosh. So, right. So they are really coming to these prisons maybe maybe once a month, maybe. Mm. Um, and there was actually uh, an incident in 2020 where this is a real story where uh, a Muslim chaplain of who was stretched between like multiple different prisons died of covid no kidding and so i mean what are you gonna do in the in that situation right right this individual that's become somehow a lifeline for 20 different facilities right right exactly then at the crux of all of these other intersectional issues with covid too right yeah so and to take it even further right so like these chaplains if you were to, let's say, ask them to uh, maybe for a copy of the Quran, right, a copy of the holy book, oftentimes they'll do whatever they can to, like, get you a copy. But oftentimes, in order to actually receive them, you have to be deemed Muslim, like actually Muslim. So uh, that process often looks like meeting with a chaplain. And sometimes this chaplain will kind of, like, interview you or ask you questions about islam just to make sure you you're actually muslim and you're not just asking 
for um halal meals just because you don't like pork or something like that so like, there's this like internal policing going on right there's this yes internal policing um and even communal policing of like who is considered muslim um within each institution and so let's say you are a queer or trans muslim in the carceral state and you would like a copy of the holy book you would like a prayer rug to 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 worship on um you would like access to halal meals or access to the weekly uh friday prayers um on the holy day which is friday for muslims it's really great um everyone should change their holy day to friday but <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so you're queer or you're trans and you're looking for Islamic resources. Oftentimes you have to meet with a chaplain who is most likely cis and straight. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times these chaplains can deny you that the Ugh. chaplains can be like, actually gay and transness isn't a thing in Islam. So therefore you're not Muslim. That's horrible. And so, yeah. And even if they were by some grace of God deemed as Muslim, they are still going to deal with a lot of homophobia and transphobia, a lot of violence um, in general, even within the Muslim community in prison. So there's this pitting of identities against each other that's leading to further isolation. Like these folks who already are, because of even only being a queer trans person and being incarcerated or right. just being a Muslim and being incarcerated or experiencing so much isolation, then like somehow there's this extra layer of it, even within both of those identities, yep. because one is deemed to be contradictory to the other. Yes. Yep. Okay. So you have no. And so, yeah, exactly. As you describe it, there are people who are ultra isolated, not just from the free world community, but even from the the sub communities within prisons and so part of what uh the work that i've been engaging with is um sending out free resources to anyone who asks for it so that could look like a a, a translated copy of the quran um specifically a translated copy that doesn't include uh homophobic interpretations of, okay. of of the text um so like similar to how there's like a king james version of the bible versus all these other magical bibles that don't mention <laughs> homophobia right um in the quran there is no mention of there's no explicit word in the quran that means homosexual or gay or trans or lesbian and so the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, or um, in Arabic, he's known as Lut, um, that story is often interpreted in a very homophobic, um, misogynistic way. But in the Quran, the people in that story, again, aren't aren't referred to as gay or homosexual or trans or anything of that 
uh, of that nature. They're referred to as what in Arabic is Ahlilut, which literally in English, the direct translation is the people of Lot. Mm. So these are, and to say the people of Lot, right? These are people that were in community with like an important religious, hist historical, Islamic, Abrahamic yeah. <laughs> figure, right? But um, oftentimes, translations won't say people of Lot. It'll say homosexuals. Mm. So we also have to find translations and interpretations that aren't homophobic. And that's really hard to come by. There are a few different translations that are, that are really close, but yeah, none of them are perfect. And so we have to send those out, um, sending out prayer rugs, hijabs, kufis, um, pre-pandemic, uh, one of my colleagues, MJ, he would actually go out to these prisons and speak one-on-one -on -one with prison chaplains and kind of advocate, um, personally advocate for uh, queer and trans folks and um, kind of educate a little bit about what it means to be queer and trans and Muslim. Um, but yeah, since the pandemic, we haven't been able to do that. And restrictions now within prisons are harsher than they've ever been before right. so yeah it's that's just that's just scratching the surface <laughs> I know that was a lot no I mean it's so important to shed light on some of these very human and very lonely experiences that folks are having when they're trapped within the carceral state and I think telling the truth about what's happening hopefully will help bring people further along in their own reckoning with whatever their discomforts are around abolition. I think I have people in my own life that think a lot about all of the what ifs, right? Like, right. what do we do with the quote unquote real criminals? Like naming that there are people right. that are incarcerated who shouldn't be, but that there's still some assumption that there's like a spectrum of human that's good and bad and bad should be punished. And right like reformed or whatever the fuck like right. so there's so much work to do and I think a lot of that work is telling real people stories and and sharing real human experiences yeah. um so thank you for for doing that here today and for always doing that and what you do I'm happy to do it anytime <laughs> people so, so much of our conversation today invited in your experiences, of course, living as a Black person, as a queer person, as a Muslim, under a pretty American national context, right? Your experiences being in schools here in the U.S., your experiences advocating with folks within this prison industrial complex in the United States. Um, but if we take a global approach to our lives, as we all have to, there's so much more to our identities because of stories of colonization, because of stories of immigration. Uh, and so you, as you shared, your your parents and your dad specifically, he was growing up in Sudan, experiencing his own learnings of what Islam meant uh, while living in Sudan, while being in a Catholic school, like all of these layers. But you are Sudanese, and much of your advocacy also involves shedding light on the Sudanese conflict. 
Uh, I'd love to just hear you reflect on what you wish folks knew about what's currently happening and what's at stake in Sudan. Yeah, there's so many thoughts that float in my mind regarding Sudan. I want to say, I want to name kind of the emotions that I've had thinking about Sudan in the past couple of months, which, um, and as far as I know, many people of the diaspora have been feeling a lot of grief um, when it comes to all of the ongoing conflict that has been going on in Sudan for decades, mm-hmm. <laughs> but especially um, in the past couple of months with now there's this mass exodus of Sudanese refugees leaving their homes because there is just like, it's not even a civil war. It's just a, a war battleground happening in the country and specifically um, in Darfur, which is West Sudan or in Western Sudan and in Khartoum, which is the capital of Sudan. Um, Khartoum is also where both of my parents are from. I used to go to I used to go to Khartoum every other summer. I would spend summers with my family over there. Um, and I, I guess okay. So for for context, Sudan has had a very long history and tradition of colonialism and. Um, even after even after they gained independence from Britain, they've dealt with a lot of um, dictators fighting mm-hmm. for power, right? Um, and these dictators are kind of following suit with the standard that's been set by colonialism, right? right. And so most recently, the 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 latest dictator was ousted, imprisoned. Um, the people, the people really fought like and and protested for a peaceful civilian led government um and so in the transitions between um dictator to a, an elected official um there has been a lot of martial law mm. and even when uh, there was a sovereign council who appointed a temporary um, transitional prime minister. He was doing some so, some work, um, and there was an assassination attempt on his life. <laughs> and after this assassination attempt, he was like, "I resign." <laughs> he was like, "This is not worth it." <laughs> Which I don't blame him. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so now we're back to martial law, right? And uh, these two army generals, um, one of them who is like the commander in chief of the Sudanese army. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this other general who just so happens to lead this uh, paramilitary group gang uh just people with guns essentially is what it is right right um and they're both fighting over power um and they've decided to just like have a pissing contest using uh using guns and missiles and 
fighter jets and bombs and explosions. Um, and their battleground is the capital of Sudan, which is the largest city. It has a population of over 5 million people. Um, so in some, that's like bigger than some cities. That's bigger than some countries, right. just the capital city alone, right? Um, and so it's been going on for a little bit over two months now. Um, this and mass conflict, mass violence in this highly densely populated community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just so, so many horror stories about all the things that have happened. Um, and even within my own family, I mean, I'm lucky now. I want to say about like 95% of my family has now um, seeking refuge, seeked refuge in um, in Egypt. But mm -hmm. even now, Egypt uh, very recently closed their borders um, and they kind of made an announcement that was like, our borders are closed. You can't come in without a passport or visa. Sorry. That's awful. I mean, and, I mean, I, I say that's awful and it's basically what we also participate in as a country here. So exactly. Exactly. And so uh, my grandmother is kind of stuck in Sudan right now. Um, and how scary. It, yeah, it it is very scary. So, yeah, I've just been dealing with a lot of grief about, you know, personally in like will I ever see the house that I basically grew up in mm. for part of my childhood? Am I ever going to see my grandmother again? Are, are my cousins and my aunts and uncles, are they safe? Um, am I ever going to see them again? Right? Like, will I ever be able to step foot in Sudan, the country ever again? I have no idea. No one knows. Right. And I've accepted that there's nothing that I can really do right now. Um, but yeah, every single Sudanese person I've talked to, um, in Sudan, out of Sudan, you know, first generation, second generation, they're all in, we're all in this like very deep pit of grief. And it's not like, you know, you can just drive over, pick them up and bring them back to your place. Right. That's right. It's not that simple. Um, so, yeah. And so I, I to answer your question, what do I wish people knew about Sudan and this and specifically the people of Sudan? I mean, there's so much, but I think the. The first thing that comes to mind is that. They, like all of us, deserve so much more. Yes. They deserve so much more. Um, and. Yeah. I hate comparing people and I hate comparing communities and, and such, but like with the Russian Ukrainian conflict, right? Americans heard about it. And now suddenly every American knows the colors on the Ukrainian flag. Mm. Right. And it's not like that with Sudan. And I, a lot of, a lot of times I wonder if it's because Sudan is a black country is a Muslim country. Uh, if it's because they're a third world country, right? An underdeveloped nation that's been systemically exploited. Right. So you're like, is which it, which thing is at play here? Is it right? Is it all of is the it above? The capitalism, right? Is it the Islamophobia, like right? Yeah. Is it all of the above? Yeah. And oftentimes, I have a friend who. Let me start that sentence over. 
I have a friend who um, recently has said that East Africa is often where Pan-Africanism goes to die. Mm. And my first thought was, what the fuck did she just say? Yeah. <laughs> and then I realized um, when I'm, when people think of Africa, they think of, they either have really like distorted, barbaric, racist views of what Africa looks like, or what they're thinking of is usually Nigeria, South Africa, maybe Kenya, mm. and maybe ancient Egypt, not present yeah. Egypt, <laughs> very ancient Egypt. Textbook, um, pyramid, Sphinx, Egypt. Yes. Yeah. And actually, a lot of people don't know that Sudan has more pyramids than Egypt does. Tell us. Sudan has the oldest and the most um, number of pyramids. But we only think of people only think about Egypt. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of history behind Egypt, uh, Egypt and the colonialism and colorism and uh, Arab supremacy um, that has gone on in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Not that Egyptians are are perpetuating all of it. Right. But that um, even though Sudanese people and Egyptian people have a lot of the same struggles. Um, Sudanese folks are often looked at as lesser than because we're darker skinned and we're, we're black. Um, Sudan actually also, Sudan literally means like the, the history behind the word Sudan comes from about like a thousand years ago where there were Arab settlers that came to, to Sudan or what is now present day Sudan. And they saw the land, they saw the people, they saw all black people, and they said, wow, this is Ard Sudan, right? Which literally means land of the blacks. Oh, interesting. So um, that got shortened to just Sudan. So Sudan literally just means blacks. <laughs> and so even you want, like, Maybe back in the 1600s, there are lots of very vintage maps um, where the entire sub-Saharan Africa is just labeled as Sudan. Interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, you're opening my mind. <laughs> yeah, so there's just like a very, very, very long history of, of racism, of anti-Blackness, of colorism within the country and also imposed on by the surrounding countries as well right. um so yeah i could talk about it forever but yeah so even folks that really value africa and are and value pan-africanism they often aren't in tune with what's going on in east africa mm. um A large part of East Africa has been just as exploited by the British as other nations like Nigeria or or Egypt, right? But 
um, not given the same attention at all. I just wish better. I wish I wish for a better future for all of the people of Sudan. And oftentimes I think about like, because I, I will say I'm, I'm privileged in that I grew, I am born and raised in Sudan. I'm privileged in that I have, or I'm sorry, I am privileged in that I am born and raised in the U.S. and that I have an American passport, right? Like this tiny booklet gives me so much privilege right? Um, in a like global context. Um, and so I often think about, well, what are, what are the queer and trans folks in Sudan doing? How are they surviving? Can I start a version of Meshid Arabia in Sudan at some point? Hey. Right. So yeah, lots of thoughts, lots of thoughts. Well, thank you for sharing your grief. I think that that's such an important thing to share with people in community and to name grief and to experience grief with people. Be explicit about grief that folks are holding um, and to also just give you a huge hug for the community that you're build building and that you're, yeah, big, we're doing like Zoom hugs over here. Yeah, Zoom hug. um, the community that you are I want to say like envisioning, right? Because maybe it's not all the way there yet. And maybe you're still experiencing some of the pain and complicated nature of identities intersecting and folks still experiencing some kind of feelings of supremacy within a group. But I see and hear that you believe in and vision something bigger and better than this for Black, queer, trans, Muslims. Um, and that's, I mean, all that we can do is try and come up with something bigger and better in our brains and try and live into that every day. So I see you doing that. Um, I see you sharing stories of real people who um, are sitting at the intersections of these identities and the joy and the grief of it all. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for your time. Um, and I do just want to hand it back to you to close if there's any social media handles you want people to follow if there's like websites you want people to check out and any closing words yeah well firstly I want to say thank you for having me I really do feel very grateful that someone anyone um but especially you being a friend wants to listen uh to all these stories and hear me ramble about things that probably aren't like directly applicable to you but matter a lot to me so I really love that in terms of getting in touch with me or like checking me out on social media um I am on Twitter and Instagram I'm most active on Instagram um, my handle is at sorry uh which is spelled s-o-r-r-y-u-h-h -H. um maybe there's an underscore somewhere in there uh, but that's pretty much my handle across uh most social media platforms and I do post a lot about you know on my on my page and and on my stories about uh, Sudanese people about art and specifically Sudanese art um, about black queer community and how meaningful it is for me to to experience all of the joy that comes with all of those intersecting identities 
And I'm also really lucky that I live in Chicago because there has been a lot of opportunity to explore, explore those communities. So, yeah. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Kelsey, well, you're making you. my day, to be honest. Oh, you're making I'm, mine. This I'm is the really, best. I'm really glad we're, we were able to have this conversation for real for real Me too. thank you for sharing everything thank you for teaching me so much uh it's been an amazing time to spend with you and i can't wait for more let's do more yes <laughs> i hope you have a really great rest of your day thank you thank you kelsey thank you listeners <laughs> <laughs> oh my heart What a special conversation on queerness, on community, on abolition, on coming of age, on ways to move through feeling of separation. I'm so grateful for this conversation and for everyone we had this season so far. As I mentioned at the start of the show, this was the second to last episode. I can't believe it. For the season finale, I am going to interview someone really special, and that someone's me. But I need your help. I'm collecting questions that you want to hear me answer for episode 10 to close out our season. No question is too big, too small, too personal, or too silly. If you have questions you want me to dig into for the finale, please email them to me at coolqueersdoingcoolshit at gmail.com or message them to me on Instagram or Twitter. Please keep supporting Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit by sharing it with loved ones, posting about it on your social media, reviewing the program and following the show on Spotify. Okay, all you queers, take care, be well, and do something that makes you laugh today. Mm -hmm.